1: And good afternoon, and welcome to Blogging Theology. And today we have uh, a very special uh, and honored guest, uh, Abdul Hakim Murad, um, Sheikh, uh, who is also uh, an Englishman, uh, a convert to Islam, uh, Professor uh, Tim Winter. So you are most welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's, it's an honor to be here on the show. Thank you.
1: Um, for any
2: uh, viewers who are not familiar,
1: uh, with his biography, I'll just mention a few. A few of his um, accreditations. He's the the founder and dean of the Cambridge Muslim College, uh, also the Aziz Foundation Professor of Islamic Studies at both the Cambridge Muslim College and Ibrahim College, which is in East London. Uh, he's also director of studies in theology and religious studies at Wolfson College in Cambridge, Cambridge University, where he is also uh, Sheikh Zayed, Lecturer of Islamic Studies in the Faculty of Divinity at that uh, university. Um, As I mentioned, he is a a convert or revert to uh, Islam and is the author of numerous books, uh, original work, plus translations of texts uh, from Arabic uh, and also from, I think, from Turkish. possibly from Persian, I don't know, into English, Um, and uh, he joins us today, as I say, and I want to focus on uh, themes arising from his most recent work, uh, which has proved to be quite a a sensation, uh, called Travelling Home, Essays on Islam in Europe, published by Quilliam Press last year, 2020, and the uh, what uh, one reviewer um, on I think it was on Amazon uh, described the prose style as complex uh, but well thought through and I think I agree with that the 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 language is uh, challenging it's demanding but in a good way making you think and ponder over the meaning of the thoughts that are conveyed therein and it's certainly well thought through. And I just wanted to introduce the book by reading a a paragraph from the book to give you a flavor of the style and the theme uh, from which uh, many of the uh, insights come from. And he he writes that um, Muslims, now, this is obviously Muslims in Europe primarily, but Muslims find themselves at home everywhere, meaning everywhere in the world. And what is this Muslim sense of belonging? that believers feel more at home in a place than any atheist could, since to lose contact with God is immediately to forfeit one's sense of connection to a place of his God making. It is to feel one's roots and identity shrivel. There can be no truly English, German or Russian atheist. From this kind of Muslim perspective, Lenin was not Russian, Douglas Murray is not British, and Sam Harris is not American. They seem to wait in a forlorn foreign encampment, even when officially at home. By contrast, to become Muslim or to arrive from an Islamically Abrahamic place is to maintain that traditional sensibility which perceives God's signs superabundantly everywhere is immediately to see the land with understanding and hence to begin to grow roots and to adorn and engage the earth. Such very roughly is the Islamic theory of Abrahamic mobility. Unlike Israel, wanderings in exile, which await the messianic intervention, which would take the people to a home greater than all homes, Muslims travel from one home to an equal other and do not cherish a return to the mother of cities, except as visitors. They migrate Abrahamically, but every country for them is a promised land." That's almost rising to the level of poetry, in my view. It's beautifully written prose uh, and uh, makes its point with uh, supreme eloquence. Um, but enough flattery, sincerely meant. Um, Would you like just to expand a bit on that, perhaps in simpler language for those? I'll shut up now.
2: Yes, I I sometimes forget what I myself intended when I write those long sentences. But uh, I think what I'm reaching for is the idea that there is something rather startlingly miraculous about the Sira story, which of course is, pivots around a migration, insofar as it clearly continues and uplifts and affirms and... Uh, repairs certain aspects of the the pre-existent Jewish story in particular, Mm. uh, but doesn't include the idea of uh, a unique people or a uniquely appropriate land in which they belong. So even though sort of Western Arabia was this dusty remote place that few people in the larger ecumenical Hellenistic world had ever thought, thought about. Nonetheless, it becomes the crucible for something that turns out to be very successfully universal. And you do find that in uh, the, the anti-tribalism of the Holy Prophet's migration, the fact that he establishes in Medina this mosque, this place of worship, which is to be the first non-tribal, non-racial, non-national space that Arabia has ever seen. So that you have Bilal, the Abyssinian, you have Sohaib, the uh syrian byzantine you have uh salman the persian and they can go and be and pray uh, anywhere in the mosque and that's a kind of sign uh of islam's universal uh, aspiration That this is a migration it's a kind of exodus but it's not an exodus that kind of is to a place where everybody has to be and from which they've been exiled but it's an exodus into god's god's wide earth and so the. Uh, the Hadith, the whole earth has been made a mosque for me, which is one of the khasais, the unique qualities of the Holy Prophet's uh, religion, turns out to be the case that despite the sort uh, of details of the Sunnah, uh, the Sunnah works and helps us in 21st century Britain and in Australia and Malaysia and turns out to be remarkably sort of portable. That's one of the miracles, I think, of, of Islam, that despite the particularity of its origin, it has served as as a religion that, that uplifts, transforms, uh, invigorates so, so many peoples. So the corollary of that is that if the Qur'an is pointing us towards God's signs in nature and saying that the whole world is God's and so migration is just migrating from one part of god's manifestation to another part uh, that wherever you go uh, if you have a sound heart and you're reading the scripture you will see the sacred in the place where you are there's no place where god is absent Uh, and therefore muslims in europe now uh, looking around, traveling in the earth, considering the ayat, the signs of God, the local sacralities, the theophanies, the, the wonders of nature, beauty, etc., actually have more right to consider themselves to be belonging to those places than those who are atheists and therefore have migrated away from the deep narrative of those places. So, a couple of days ago, I find myself driving on the A3, whatever it is, from which you can see Stonehenge. And Stonehenge is from the Stone Age. It's even before Iron Age, Bronze Age. It's really ancient, enigmatic. We don't really know what it was. Uh, But it's a reminder of the fact that uh, people in this island have, until a generation ago, always focus their life on the sacred and a sense of the sacrality, the mystery of the earth, no doubt in often aberrant ways. But that's normative to what it is to belong to this this island. And so Muslims, superficially judged to be the people who most obviously don't belong, particularly by the kind of anti-immigrant right, uh, turn out to be the people who uh, most belong to uh, the broad outlines, if not the details, of the the sacred story of what used to be called the matter of Britain. Mm -hmm. If you look at even William Blake and English sort of platonic speculators about the meaning of of the country, they'll say, well, it's about God. It's Mm -hmm. about a particular way of reflecting and and affirming the divine nature. So Muslims do that, despite the superficial exoticism, uh, whereas the atheists certainly don't. So I think from a deeper historical perspective, not even necessarily a religious perspective, one can see the Muslims as having a deep right to belong and as being authentically indigenous, whatever their DNA might be. That's, from our point of view, irrelevant. Uh, Whereas these new uh, sort of secular and atheistic, utilitarian, scientific interpretations uh, have to be seen as uh, denying people really the right to feel that they are rooted and belong to this country. So I'm trying to invert the, the usual narrative that perceives Muslims as kind of wandering outsiders. Uh, I think uh, on a deeper level, um, given the logic of what this country has always been, what Europe has always been, it's the Muslims who very evidently belong.
1: Yeah, I just um, perhaps I um, challenge you on that slightly, mm-hmm. uh, say Douglas Murray, I've read several of his recent books and he's a very eloquent man. And you, he talks quite openly, I think one of his books, like The Suicide of Europe, about the loss of faith that mm-hmm. characterizes modernity. And he doesn't rejoice in this. He's not yes. like a, you know, a Dawkins uh, who is a militant atheist. He grieves over the yep. loss of a spiritual heart. And I noticed he appeared a day or two ago on, um, I think it's premieres, it as a Christian channel, I think in London, uh, talking with. Um, Uh, Professor Tom Wright, the former Bishop of uh, Durham, the Christian theologian, Mm -hmm. uh, he's now at Oxford, a very distinguished uh, Christian churchman in his own right. And I I sense, could be wrong, that Douglas Murray is looking for a way home, Mm -hmm. maybe the Christian tradition, because he realises the vacuity, the nihilism at the heart of of contemporary nationalism, contemporary popularism, contemporary anti-Muslim polemic, Mm -hmm. is not Mm -hmm. really drawing on those noble Christian European traditions of faith, of spirituality, of transcendence, uh, going back at least as far as the Stonehenge. So maybe, you know, he's not, I I know he is anti-Muslim, don't get me wrong, Douglas Murray is, but I think underneath that um, that rhetoric, there is nevertheless a, a heart that is seeking faith again.
2: Oh, that's not. human nature, isn't it? Because it's yeah. what we've always been. There may even be a God gene. Some people, I think the Daily Telegraph recently published a speculative, slightly cheeky piece indicating that uh, belief is so fundamental, uh, a part of the human metabolism, that perhaps atheism should be classified as a mental illness. You can imagine the chatter that, that resulted as a result of that. But you know, objectively, uh, there is a case to be made. So, of course, mm-hmm. these people recognize that they're missing something. But yes. the problem often is that uh, for psychic or nationalistic or tribal, sometimes racial reasons, they can't see where the truth actually is. And one of the things I'm trying to reach for in the book is that uh, God's truth, thanks to another of those great historic ironies, is placed in our age precisely where the elites least expect it to be mm, mm, mm. it's like i gave a talk recently about the holy grail and europeans for centuries have been kind of scratching around probably not far from where you are at the moment in france mm. uh, the nazis were were digging away in those caves in southern france trying to find the grail mm. and just last week in glastonbury somebody tried to dig up the tomb of king arthur to see if the Grail <laughs> was that kind of permanent obsession wow. uh, But according to the historians, the roots of the Grail legend are most likely to be found in Islam because it's the black stone in the Kaaba, and many historians say this is what it is, and the medieval European legends recognize this. Even Wagner in his letters says, well, isn't it a shame that our great German legends actually turn out to be of Saracenic origin Mm -hmm. when he was writing his great Parsifal. But the Grail is available. This thing that the Europeans have always been looking for most is the black stone. So it's kind of hidden in plain sight, if you like. You can see it. You don't need to dig around in Provence. You can see it if you go on the National Geographic Channel and there it is. But it's in the wrong place for the European ego. Because the point of the Grail search and for any traditional pilgrimage, we're in the Hajj days of course now, is that it is about the outward enactment of the inward journey, which is about overcoming ego. Mm. Superbia, pride is the worst of the deadly sins. And it is generally Europe's pride that says, well, I can go through any of these ordeals and I'm happy to scale Mount Doom and fight with black dragons and deal with the green knight like Sir Gawain and I'm a real, uh, real warrior. But when you say, "Well, you just you can get to the Grail Temple, you can kiss the Grail if you like," uh, but you have to say seven words in Arabic in order to be allowed in. They say, "Oh, well, I don't don't fancy that ordeal. Thank you very much. I'd rather yeah. fight with a black dragon in Mount Doom or something. That's that's my kind of ordeal." So uh, this is a divine irony uh, that the Grail is there and it is understood, and it is the traditional yearning for the European soul. Uh, which is not really a christian legend it's kind of it is it is from islam it's certainly not biblical but it's the pride of europe it makes it so difficult for them really to consider that actually god may be placing his secret in our age in the place that they are most habituated to despise with all of those sort of Bangladeshis and saudi's they can't imagine it could be there of all places
1: well indeed and one of the great ironies of all this is that the traditional christian um Faith, which is uh, precipitously declining, at least uh, yep. in UK, we're looking at church attendance in the Church of England, and free fall. You know, these people follow a Jew from Palestine yep. from two thousand years ago, who wasn't white, who didn't speak English probably, um, yep. and uh, and who who culturally and linguistically, semantically, uh, yep. uh, Aramaic is, is cognate with uh, Arabic and Hebrew. Uh, He had much more in common with a a certain 7th century Arabian prophet than the Archbishop of Canterbury or Tom Wright, uh, and and yet they they see him, Jesus, as part of their history, and somehow have a problem with a very similar character who taught basically the same thing just down the road in Arabia. I, I find that ironic.
2: Well, it's again rooted in prejudice, and you have to remember how fiercely Europe always self-defined as being that which is not Islamic. Mm -hmm. Islam, by this miraculous, historically unique process, came out of those Arabian Valleys and within a hundred years it was in southern France and the gates of China, and this is the great trauma of traditional Europe. Um, I was reading recently a, a story of a 16th century Protestant in North Germany who said, well, clearly the Turks are the most powerful country in the world. We know that they treat the Christians well and allow different sects to co- coexist, unlike us in Germany. So I think it's wrong, biblically, to fight against them because we're supposed to be pacifists. We should let the Turks invade, and Christianity will do better here than it does under these warring Catholic and Protestant princes. And for that, of course, he was horribly tortured and put to death, and <laughs> they danced on his grave. because his name,
1: by the way? Uh, do you recall?
2: I, I can find it. If you like, I don't recall the yeah, poor guys. Yeah. I I'm sure we would like to
1: look, look at extraordinary. It's, this is uh, the
2: great unthought of Europe, Um, because you know the great the great pilgrimage centre of Western Europe is Santiago de Compostela, isn't it? And or not far from me, in Lourdes, actually, uh, it's about an hour and a half. Lord, yeah, but but Santiago is much bigger, and medieval yeah. English yeah. people would go there, and the Camino is a big thing. When you get there, to a rather, in my view, over baroque and Elaborate bling church at the center of it. There's the big statue of Saint James, mm. and his title is Saint James Matamoros, the Muslim killer. Wow. So, the destination of Western Europe's big sacred pilgrimage is this big statue, and he has a white face. He's on his horse, and with his sword, he's cutting the heads off these rather sad looking, dark skinned Muslims who are being trampled underfoot. And nowadays, the church finds it a bit unecumenical and embarrassing. So you can see that they arrange flowers to kind of disguise (laughs) these sad looking Muslims. (laughs) He's still the patron (laughs) saint of Spain, uh, St. James the Muslim killer. And that's so deeply rooted in the DNA, even of quite secular people, I think, like Douglas Murray and so forth, that it's just very, very hard. But there are people, even from the far right in Europe, who have made the leap into Islam Mm -hmm. publicly or privately. I'm in conversation with some. Really nationalistic people in Europe, quite well known people who have Wikipedia pages and a kind of Twitter storm whenever they say something, who have discreetly come to Islam or at least recognize that Islam is the truth. So one should never despair of those people. And um, And you call them. I believe will be a very good Mahmoud when he finally overcomes this, this, this Matamoros DNA. and and, and humbles himself before the Lord of of Abraham.
1: That would be a a, a day to rejoice. So uh, uh, um, you you quite do it with you that coined this term, submarines.
2: Yeah. What what, what are submarines? Submarines are those people of, uh, we don't know how many they are, who convert to Islam and do it, but without announcing it to anybody. I Even knew a guy, Jewish guy, who, whose wife was very puzzled that at kind of 4 o'clock in the morning he would mysteriously get up out of bed and come back 10 minutes later a little bit damp and <laughs> she couldn't figure out what this was about. <laughs> Went on for years. Um, but yes, I, I know a full professor here in Cambridge who's been a Muslim. Occasionally you see him discreetly in the mosque but he's certainly not known to be Muslim. And uh, there's, you know, there's I know a guy who is the senior advisor to uh, a cabinet minister, in the current government who is an active convert to Islam, but I think nobody in Boris's team suspects this. There's quite a lot of them. Um, and the idea is that they want the beauty of Islam and they love the form of prayer and the purity of the monotheism and what's not to like. But all of the kind of mm. uh, crisis talk about Muslim communities and Palestine and Afghanistan and so forth, they, they don't feel that they want to take on the psycho babble that goes with it, so they 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 keep quiet about it. So yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of people like that.
1: I find it interesting that uh, and, and fascinating. That, um, in Europe, prominent as you say, far right, populist, um, non-Muslim leaders privately contact you uh, and yep. disc- and discreetly uh, send out feelers in a very positive, way, in, mm. and in place. And I think that's a, an extraordinary ministry to use. Christian language that you have to the world?
2: Well, it's a very passive one because I don't go out. You know, I've, I've, I've not emailed somebody like Milo Yanopoulos and drawn the merits of the Quran to his attention. Uh, oh, they're you mean, they, the Milo. Oh, you mean the Milo, the, the he, Anglo-American? Who's now, who's now got religion and I mean, repented of his former been, yes. orientation and has become... It's kind of a uh, good boy. Anyway, he's a kind of ultra-traditionalist Catholic of the sort of... If you watch... Uh, church militant and those uh, Catholic oh, websites you can see yeah. his part of that world. Well, well uh, but yes I mean, the, the fact is that Muslims do dichotomize and assume that those people are kind of soulless androids mm-hmm. who we just have to insult and push away. But everybody has a soul. Everybody yeah. was there at the day of the primordial covenant when we all said, yes, we bear witness. Everybody therefore is thirsty for God and we shouldn't despair of anyone. And that's part of the beauty of the Seerah. Even when the Holy Prophet was being persecuted and his companions tortured and killed, he would pray in what seemed like the most unlikely way. Mm-hmm. Uh, strengthen Islam by Abu'l-Hakam or Omar, the two great Islamophobes of, of the age. And, and Omar came to Islam by God's decree. And I think that's a more healthy place for us to be in Da'wah terms than yeah. just uh, Twitter storming people and responding to their abuse with more abuse. I think that uh, the, the Quran says, call to the way of your Lord with wisdom and goodly exhortation. And mm-hmm. That's a commandment that I think is binding on us.
1: Yes. Well, come on perhaps uh, to, to the Da'wah scene in the UK shortly. But can, just perhaps moving on the conversation to um, something that is summarizing in this ghastly term, wokeism. Um, what is works and I don't know, it's kind of a new form of political correctness, but it seems to have um, uh, become a, a cultural revolution now, um, and it's focusing on issues of gender, of sexualities, particularly doing away, in my understanding, with traditional definitions of gender, uh, and people now seem to, uh, it's not acceptable for people to define uh, their own personal agenda by their beliefs about their agenda. So if I think I'm a woman then I really am a woman and and uh, people should uh, accept that. And doctors and powers that be will all say, yep, yeah, this person is a woman. Um, and this kind of redefinition of reality, um, I mention this because it obviously affects all of us, but particularly regarding Muslims in the West, in Britain, uh, France, uh, America and so on, who are coming under pressure, of course, because Muslims are quite traditional and conservative when it mm-hmm. comes to sexuality, the place of uh, intercourse uh, within a heterosexual marriage uh, and gender roles are, are quite clearly defined and celebrated and accentuated rather than I don't know smoothed over in a, an egalitarian kind of mishmash of uh, everyone is universally the same um, but uh, am yeah, I right in thinking this is becoming a serious issue for Muslims particularly those with children who are whose children have been I might say, brainwashed by their teachers in
2: the States. Well, yeah, I don't see it as a specifically Muslim issue, but I think it's something um, that people who want to maintain the traditional idea of gender dimorphism, which seems to be implicit in all the world's, scriptures, you know, Taoism and Hindu religion, they all assume that reality is dyadic and that the mysterium tremendum and the mysterium fascinans are part of the nature of existence and it is through their interaction that the miracle of life comes about, as you can see in most of the species uh, around us, and that's kind of always assumed to be the case. So, But it is, and and there are a lot of Christians. If you look at the organization Christian Concern, they often champion individuals who have been persecuted, really, that's the word, uh, because of what is now called heteronormativity. So, uh, I mean, I could mention a friend of mine, somebody I consider a friend, Bernard Randall, who used to be chaplain of one of the colleges here in Cambridge, Christ's College. Um, very decent guy, mildly conservative, evangelical perhaps, um, but very open and courteous. Uh, He got a job as RE teacher at a school with an evangelical heritage and was overheard to indicate that according to the Church of England, marriage is between one man and one woman.
1: Which is the truth, isn't it? That
2: is the official teaching. That is. It's on their website. So not only do they fire him, Mm -hmm. but they also refer him to prevent. Can you imagine? (laughs) As Uh, if saying uh, that the Church of England says this, which is just a fact, means that you're potentially... A terrorist, terrorist suspect. Well, of course, prevent they throw it out because they can see this is really... Didn't meet their threshold, as it were. But then, uh, and the, the kids in the school, the conservative Christians are saying, is this a compulsory belief that mm. heteronormativity is wrong and that we have to be against it? Is it obligatory now? And it's a source of distress, evidently, for some of them and for their, for their parents. and And then Bernard, Contacts to his supporters, Lambeth Palace to find out what huh, the Archbishop of Canterbury has to say about what is on the Anglican Church's <laughs> website, uh, and um, the Archbishop of Canterbury declines to intervene and says well, it's terribly complicated. You know, you have to understand all sides and the usual prevarication. So he won't defend his own priest and effectively throws him to the lions just for saying what the teaching of the church historically is and continues to be. So that's the, you know, Christians are facing this as well. But interestingly, the same archbishop, hmm, you may recall at the the Batley cartoons scandal a few months yeah. ago yes. when those outrageous cartoons were being brandished to Muslim pupils in a, in a school, the archbishop said, no, I believe in freedom of speech. Hmm. A look at this. Is the priority that Lambeth Palace seems to have now that Muslim pupils can be offended, but yeah. students who uh, believe in heteronormativity just have to be smacked and silenced. That well, seems to be their view.
1: Well, Why I'm particularly
2: disappointed about Welby, the current
1: Archbishop of Canterbury, is that you know, I happen to know that he comes from an evangelical background <coughs> associated with HTV, Holy Trinity Brompton in, uh, yep. Yep. in London, which is a, a powerhouse of evangelical mm. Anglican. Yep. Uh, theology hugely popular with the middle classes in uh, kensington yep. and he comes from that very constituency and yet mm-hmm. when he reaches canterbury uh lo and behold he uh the uh, in my view the zeitgeist uh becomes his touchstone rather than his um his faith and um you know i, I don't want to be rude about the man but i'm it uh, mildly i'm extremely disappointed and you know if an evangelical archbishop of Canterbury fails to stand up for his own church's preaching what hope is there for anyone and the yeah. thing is church declines and declines and declines And uh, you've said this before in other words that the only real uh monotheistic presence in europe that is standing on its own legs put it that way is islam which is uh, mostly uncompromised. I say mostly because at the fringes there are modernists yeah. who are, um, you know, praising, uh, or, you know, all these LGBT whatever things. But most Muslims are remaining steadfast, it seems. Is that is that correct, assessment?
2: Well, uh, it is the case, at least in Western Europe, Eastern Europe has a very different, more conservative logic, right. that if you go into... A church you can't be quite sure what you're going to see or what you're going to hear. Yes. And if you're in a parish you have to like it or lump it really, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but it's also objectively the case that if you go into any mosque, really any mosque in Western Europe, you can be pretty sure that you'll see the liturgy that you expect to see uh, and the sermon will be within some kind of bandwidth that is recognizably part of some sort of classical Islamic broad consensus. So I don't see it really as being about these sexuality issues, but more about uh, more about tradition and uh, the, the courage to defend tradition. Because the LGBT thing in Islam has been dealt with in such a different way historically. Then it was dealt with in Christianity. That you can't really apply the same kind of—is it phobic? Is it not phobic? It's—it's it's more complex and nuanced than that. And we don't really fit on that—that that spectrum at all. Um, and obviously, everybody has to be dealt with with compassion and and understanding. But uh, yeah, the liturgy is, is actually more central. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can yeah any any you go in the world. Really, there's 10 million mosques in the world. 10 million. In how, mos- 10 million mosques in the world. Yeah. Uh, In how many will you see something that really is a clear violation of something that's in the scriptures when you go for Jumwa prayers? How many? Now, there may be horrible fundamentalist extremist sermons. There may be sermons uh, dictated by regimes that people have to read out. But still, it will be canonically valid. Uh, That's the point. So I've just looked through quite an interesting book. It might be up your street, or maybe you've seen it, Stephen Bullivant, Mass Exodus.
1: Uh, I've heard of it, yes. I've read a review of it, yeah. uh, Yeah, uh,
2: which is basically, it says, Catholic disaffiliation in Britain and America since Vatican II. Uh, It's about (laughs) why it is that the Catholic churches are emptying and nobody wants to be a priest any longer, and the churches are all being closed and turned into condominiums or mosques or whatever. Uh, And his conclusion is that it is partly because of Vatican II and partly because the church doesn't really seem to clearly maintain its traditional values. Mm -hmm. He seems to suggest that young people will respect a religion more if it stays clear about its teachings, even if they don't agree with those teachings, then, if it's kind of squishy and follows the Zeitgeist in an anxious attempt to hold on to young people's attention at all, at all there, costs, there,
1: there, there is a problem here. I, I won't mention his name, and I won't mention which mosque. There is a um, an imam of a very prominent London mosque um, who gives the Kutbah uh, on Fridays, obviously, uh, who told me uh, in in confidence. I'm not portraying the comment. I'm not saying who he is or where he's from, but the that he will not preach on Friday on sexuality issues particularly on homosexuality for fear that the mosque will be invaded he'll be put on a register mm-hmm. yeah. be, the police will get interested now he is not a, he is a he was born in this in england i should say mm-hmm. a highly intelligent man um he's a good good guy actually uh, and, and that he knows that yeah if um, that he will come under suspicion of the authorities and suffer consequences, either from the state or from activists, you know, the old outrage mob will come in and disrupt, as they have done, and I've witnessed this, in churches. So people self-censor and don't yeah. preach on
2: subjects. Yeah, uh, and and the issue of whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is another one that a lot yeah, of Muslims who true. are in exposed positions have to negotiate. And oh, we just have to recognise that, there isn't freedom of expression, and let's be honest, there isn't freedom of expression in any Muslim country either. There's other ways, other ways of tiptoeing through different minefields that happen if you're in Egypt or Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, it's not just the West that is censorious by any means. But if you're a minority, you have to respect the local sanctities, and these nowadays are quite different to those which christianity historically acknowledged but um, we're still you know, allowed to preach on 99% of what is significant so uh, i see it just as a matter of courtesy really
1: right right interesting so in terms of the question of hydra which is on some people's minds mm. so i brought this up with a, a professor uh, from zaytuna a week or two ago professor abdullah ali mm-hmm. uh, um, who's american and and he and asked him about hitra and he, given the pressures and increasing hostile environment that many Muslims feel they're in in the West, and, and they, many of these people have children, you know, who are being educated in these um, woke values, which are inimical to traditional faith, be it Christian or Muslim or Jewish. Yep. And said, fascinatingly, it never occurred to me that, you know, if you're in California and you're, on, you're on a Muslim, yeah, you can do Hitra. within America. It's a federal, you know, you know it's a huge, vast continent with many different nations, yep. states, so move to a Republican area where, where traditional values are respected. And, and many of these traditional Christian Republicans are actually not Islamophobic as the media stereotype yep. would, uh, would have you believe. And I didn't know that. So uh, his answer was you don't have to literally leave the West. You can move within the West to a more Yep. Um, safe and welcoming. Uh, would you agree with that or would you see Hidra as a, as a serious consideration for Muslims? Today? Well,
2: um, America is certainly not Britain. It's not obvious that there's a place in Britain to which you could migrate if you don't want your children to be yep. uh, indoctrinated with the latest state beliefs. Um, but th- there are problems in the US, of course. Uh, do you really want to um, go past uh, a lot of Trump banners and posters every time you go to work, um, that is also a problematic view. But it is, it is the case that even though many Muslims think that the evangelicals are kind of hell-bent on Zionism and the destruction of Muslims everywhere, that once you get to know those people, you find that most of them are actually very reasonable. And once they learn what Muslims actually are and they visit the mosque, they can be um, good neighbors. Yeah. So uh, it is an option, and California, of course, has always been kind of at the edge of the earth. You know, you feel like yeah. you're going to fall off mm-hmm. <laughs> if you go any further. Uh, it's a kind of extreme. But there's there's other places um, where people can move to in North America, and I think there's a very strong case nowadays for. Interreligious alliances on these issues of conscience—that people do feel persecuted, that they feel that their freedom of speech is being impugned, that their children are being indoctrinated against their will—and uh, there's there's uh, plenty of uh, opportunities for forging alliances with conservative Jewish uh, traditions, as well as with uh, traditional questions. And uh, that goes no also for places like Africa, for instance, yeah. where this is also beginning to be an issue. So, you know, but of course, we can't do that in Europe. No. Unless, of course, you want to go and live in Viktor Orban's Hungary, <laughs> which is perhaps a mixed blessing. Um, because very often conservatism in Europe tends really does go hand in hand with a furious kind of matamoros Islamophobia. Um, and that kind of partly because it tends to be less religious, I think, in a certain interesting mm-hmm. way. It's easier for us to persuade and engage with the Ahl al-Kitab than to deal with people who are just secular, atheist, nationalist, racist, to believe in a Darwinian kind of natural selection that has made the white man the top of of a billion years of evolution. It's hard to engage with them, but with people who are significantly part of Ahlul Kitab, there's always grounds for discussion.
1: But what about the homeschool? I mean, I'm not a parent myself, so this is kind of outside of my particular area, but what about homeschooling for Muslim parents? Is this a serious uh, possibility in terms of avoiding the the worst excesses of
2: A lot of people do this. It may well be the case that the various inquisitors who inspect homeschooling groups and programs will insist also on the inculcation of these new beliefs in very young children, because it's become such a passionate orthodoxy for a culture that I think has been starved of certainties for so long that it's become a kind of secular religion somehow. They're delighted that they found truths, after all and yeah. everything was relativistic. This is absolutely true, they think. And of course, yeah. they, they proselytize with all the zeal of the fundamentalist converts. So, uh, and in countries like France, homeschooling has been shut down. That may well be the pattern for many other European countries. So mm. Liberalism is increasingly becoming intolerant, uh, which might seem like a contradiction in terms. But it's what we're seeing now. A coercive liberalism is becoming yeah.
1: I know Christians are talk about muscular Christianity, and they—they they, uh, what they mean is to dominate Muslims and and force them into submission. But uh, so you don't see hijra in terms of the physical leaving of the West to Muslim majority countries as a, a particularly obvious option. Or,
2: well, where uh, is there a place that is a particularly appetizing destination right now? I don't know. Uh, I think you tell me where we've been? I, mean, I <laughs> would. I mean, Indonesia is. One of my favorite countries. I certainly wouldn't mind living in a little traditional village there, eating mangoes and paddling in the sea and just uh, being being happy, going to the mosque. Uh, I like Indonesia a lot. Wow. Uh, but then you know, in my case, what, on, what use would I be there? <laughs> uh, my skills are rather specialized. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I hang on here. Uh, in the hope that you know really the only justification for Muslims living in the West is the da'wah justification everything else is very dodgy and the first hadith of Islam beginning of Bukhari is the hadith of hijrah which is also the hadith of niyyah you know that's a big thing if you make hijrah for dunya dunya will eat you alive basically and you can see the effect on your children and grandchildren
1: yeah, most Muslims come to the West historically then, not for yeah. uh hijra purposes, not for a, a sincere desire to spread Islam, but for economic reasons for doing yeah, you? Yeah,
2: and that is not haram in Islam. Hmm. Uh, but it's uh, I think it's time now for a Nia reset for Muslims in Europe. Why are we here? Because Nia intention is enormously important in terms of divine acceptance and the our inner spiritual health. What on earth am I doing here in this Weird place. Uh, well, I'm here to help people, you know, to be rahmatul mushifa, as the Quran says, a mercy and a healing, not so that I can save up for a big new car. Allah may still help me if that's my main object in life, but may not. But if my intention actually is to help my neighbors and to spread truth and to try and bring people to mercy, respect for family, neighborhood, looking out for wild animals in the animal shelter or whatever, just helping to, to show mercy, then you know, that's a legitimate Nia. And I think if that is strongly our Nia, then there isn't really a a, a duty of, of emigration in our time. Right.
1: Okay. But finally then if we may come to um the dower scene in the United Kingdom, um, which I have observed to a small extent close up. Um how would you character, is it in a healthy state? Uh, I mean, um, uh, and what have you observed in terms of Tao activity in, in Britain?
2: Well, you probably have been more at the front line than I have. I tend to hide behind the stacks in university library and <laughs> uh, speak from a distance. Um, I mean, the, there's, there's two sides to it. There is the natural human thirst for truth and for beauty and for God and for hope and that is still there, despite the fact that everybody's so rushed off their feet and checking their texts and doing things too fast that it's hard really for their souls to experience that contemplative faculty uh, as, it's, as it's supposed to. But once people calm down a little bit, or perhaps after they've had some big misfortune in their lives, they do recognize that they need meaning and truth. Uh, and Islamic monotheism is has, all the virtues of monotheism, which is certainly history's most powerful idea, uh, but without many of the complexities that are identified with historically evolved Christianity. Um, uh, there has been a shift in the churches, as, as you've noticed, away from some of the classical formulations and towards something that is more kind of generically Unitarian. I was invited by uh, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Fraser Watts, an admirable person, mm-hmm. to uh, preach at his church when he was vicar of St. Edward's in Cambridge yes. to his congregation. It's a nice hospitable invitation. Wow. And I preached from Ridley's pulpit, the pulpit that launched the English Reformation, if you like. <laughs> <say. laughs> was, was, wasn't he burnt
1: at the stake or something? Or, uh, Sorry? Wasn't he burnt at the stake or something? Yeah, he
2: ended up um, yeah. Yeah, getting, into, uh, getting into trouble with the Marian but yeah no yeah. you, you spared that but yeah. so there i was i mean i wasn't likely to start a kind of a new mm-hmm. reformation with a sort of couple of dozen silvery headed parishioners that were <laughs> trying to hear me in the oh. church but afterwards we sat down and we talked about one of the real differences between islam and christianity and i said mm-hmm. well we do respect jesus and we respect his sainted mother but we don't believe that he was god and they said, well, we don't either. We believe he was a, a wonderful human being, but we don't understand how he could have been God at the same time. So without da'wah, da'wah in a sense, that that journey towards what makes sense is already well underway. Yes, yes. Um, and one doesn't have to get too angry and polemical. And if you are, that, people tend to get angry and polemical back. It's kind of aggression mm-hmm. is usually counterproductive. Again, the Quran does say, وَقُولُوا nasi husna." say to people what is most beautiful. And that doesn't mean using four-letter words and YouTube chat boxes. That's not the way to melt hearts, really. Um, That that just exacerbates the ego, which is what we're trying to get beyond. So yeah, people are joining Islam quietly. We get about one conversion a week registered at our main mosque in Cambridge, which I used to think was amazing. But last week, I met somebody else who said at his mosque in London they get a similar number. So we'll have to look at what the census uh, return looks like when they've uh, crunched the data that they got a couple of months ago. But for the previous census, they reckon there's about a 100,000 converts to Islam in Britain.
1: 100,000?
2: Yep. And that you can correlate by looking at the number of people who click the box Muslim, but also click the bo- box that says uh, white, Anglo-Saxon, Irish, or whatever. If you put those together, that, that's the number you get to. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, And I expect it'll be a larger number this time. But that happens really without da'wah. It happens just Mm. because people are are looking for what is, they find something in Islam, something about its timelessness. They like the form of worship. They like the uncluttered simplicity of the mosque. They love the fact that Muslims united in their ibadah, and that it's uncompromising. Ramadan is, Difficult, but impressive. Five -hmm. daily prayers, difficult, but impressive. There's a seriousness about it that makes them think, well, this is is a real religion. This looks like God's religion because it's not constantly being sweetened and diluted by anxious synods. But
0: it's... uh,
1: Indeed, I remember when I was a a Catholic uh, uh, before the reception of the Eucharist, the the central part of the the church on on a Sunday, usually, one has to fast from... For a whole hour, for a whole sixty minutes, um, um, from food, yeah, uh, and uh, I, I know it, I'm not. Let me say it to mock, but I'm just juxtaposing that with uh, the realities of Ramadan and the, uh, yep. uh, and you know anyway, it's just how different things are. Yeah,
2: yeah I think that uh, those things which make people shake their heads. Why don't we get with it and become modern and like everybody else, mm. are those things that are quite irresistibly attractive to a lot of seriously minded people, mm-hmm. um, which is why you know the mosques are full. Everybody's yeah. talking about the crisis of Islam. well, we do have a lot of crises. but if the church where my ancestors used to worship in Norwich is now a mosque, is it? Well, wow. which religion is in crisis <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, there's one thing I've always noticed the mosque. Uh, the, the problem with the mosque is they're always too full. Yeah. <laughs> there's always too. and the age of the average age of the attendees uh, yep. is very young. The average age of your average uh, Church of England or Roman Catholic church is the opposite. Um, we're talking about, as you say, lots of grey hairs. Yeah, yep. uh, that's the, the typical um, story. Right, in <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, it, it's very uh, it, you know a Juma prayer is crowded and it's a dynamic yeah. event, and Laylat al-Qadr in a mosque is yeah. overcrowded and an even more sensational event, and people people take that seriously, so mm-hmm. it's kind of self-perpetuating, and I see no sign of that really flagging anywhere in Europe. Right, um, there's places in Albania that were subject to communist forced secularisation for so many decades that people have forgotten what a mosque is for, where mm-hmm. things are flagging a bit, but really you have to adopt the Inquisition approach. You know, mm-hmm. Islam prevailed in Spain after the Muslim conquest, within a hundred years most people had converted. After the Christian reconquest of Spain, it took them hundreds of years to winkle out the last pockets mm-hmm. of Muslimness. And I'm they very- had to use the Inquisition with all of its horror and you know they were still discovering Muslims in Spain in the 18th century. Um, uh, so a friend of mine who lives in Granada recently had his house uh, rebuilt and the builders found on the ground floor a couple of skeletons that were facing the Qibla.
1: <laughs> wow, and
2: they that's... were thought to be 18th century so that family had kept up the traditions in secret, risking being burnt at the stake for yeah. For many generations, so that's the kind of resilience of Islam. It doesn't die away quickly no, um, no. because it, it's it's the religion of fitra. People love the idea of monotheism. They love the idea of a timeless, beautiful, simple, quite short form of worship. Um, what's not to like? Of course, on the surface, you have the, the Taliban and ISIS and crisis after crisis, which is what the media tend to report. But um it's it's a kind of mirror image of the west in the west on the surface everything is nice but underneath you have a demographic crisis you have the environmental crisis you have uh, the crisis of loneliness we now have uh, the world's first minister of loneliness in the uk
0: really?
2: I didn't, I yep. didn't know. yeah because society is fraying so fast so That's the society into which Muslims are being invited to integrate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, uh, So uh,
2: there's certain things that are still rough and ready, but still more or less functional. The Muslim family, the Muslim neighborhood, the place of worship, the idea of gender, these things are still maintained, despite everything.
0: Uh,
2: But the surface, of course, which the media reports is is, um, uproar, constant uproar. But beneath the surface, there's stillness.
1: But what, what about? I mean, this, I don't mean to go. On, this is a separate subject. I don't want to go into it. all now, but but what about the second generation, the third generation of Muslim immigrants, uh, uh, the, the the offspring of them? Mm-hmm. Of, are, are they retaining the faith, or are they hemorrhaging all over the place and will, will disappear like uh, you know, water in the sand, or, or will they? Will they? Will they retain their
2: Well, in, in the book, I do talk a little bit about retention, and there's been some sociological work done on it. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, twenty six percent of Christian parents statistically can expect their children to be churchgoers if they are churchgoers twenty six percent in the case of Muslims it's seventy one percent which wow. is not not hundred percent but wow. still you Three know, a, a, a rate of survival plus the converts plus big families means that the mosques are likely to be well used for some time to come well, um, true. so uh yeah, retention rates. But of course, there's, part of the problem is that the culture of many mosques in England reflects the cultural needs and mm. focus of first-generation migrant communities who came yeah. not so much with Islam, but with their culture. Yeah, And that's fine for the first generation. Mm. But the second generation, which has been to British schools and has a kind of British soul, effectively, uh, may not feel particularly at home in those spaces. And the khutbahs may not be very relevant, and that's the danger, really. that the In Islam, we have this idea of orf, local custom, which is a valid and respected thing, as long as it doesn't violate something in the Quran and the Sunnah. Uh, but if you have the orf of somewhere else, mm. and you're expecting young people with their own local orf to relate harmoniously to that, then you have a cognitive dissonance that can result in disaffiliation. And I think that's the main problem, that people find the mosques exotic, kind of spaces where an overseas beauty is maintained, rather than something that speaks to the kind of questions that they're they're having to ask here in Britain. On that point about
1: earth, I probably mispronounced it, culture. Am I right in thinking that that concept uh, is an important element to Sharia itself, that it recognizes the legitimacy, uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and value of yep. a culture, and it, it might not mm-hmm. be yep. an Arabic culture or a Bangladeshi, It could be a British, cu- an English culture, yep. Yep. is actually explicitly, uh, as long as it conf- you know, it doesn't violate Sharia. As as it- we're not talking, about, mm-hmm. not talking about alcohol abuse or pornography or, or loneliness. We're talking about those positive aspects of culture
2: yep. are,
1: are recognised by the Sharia.
2: Is that right? Yeah, uh, and this is part of the universalism, and you know, part of the the beautiful wisdom of Islam is just as even though it makes strong prophetic points against the Ahl al-Kitab, because that's what prophecy does, yes. it still is very generous. It yes. still says, Laysu they're not all the same. Amongst them is a community that is upright. It tells us to be respectful to them. That's part of you know the unique brilliance of the Quran amongst other prophetic documents in that it's respectful, even though it comes as a, a, a kind of repair. Uh, Similarly, where Islam has traveled historically, if you look at what it's done to the literatures of the peoples that it has touched, uh, it doesn't replace them with a kind of uniform Arabness, but actually triggers or galvanizes a new flourishing in those literatures. If you look at Persian literature, um, before Islam, while it's a few Avestan prayers and incantations to various kings, it's not much, then Islam comes and you have hafiz and rumi and saadi and it's a, but in farsi so it it tends to fecundate the local
0: yeah.
2: uh and it's the same with turkish literature which before islam was really nothing at all um many of the literatures of the subcontinent of west africa and so forth uh, so it's a principle that while uncompromising about ta'wheed mm. and about the inviolability of the basic sacred forms You don't introduce local customs into your Fajra prayer, for instance, and nobody would would have the temerity to do that. That's universal. But at the same time, uh, in terms of the more informal aspects of people's lives, how they dress, what they eat, the language they use, and also in their literature and perhaps some of their extra canonical rituals in, say, the context of Sufism, you'll find that local sacralities and local languages tend to be uplifted uh, and this is why Orf is, none of this is controversial. It's there in all of the classical texts of, exactly. of Sharia. Exactly. A maxim of the Sharia is, wow. which is to say, that which is known through local custom is like that which is legislated by revelation. Wow. Which some people nowadays, with a kind of rather limited view that they have of Islam find startling. Mm-hmm. but uh, that, And that's particularly effective in terms of qada. what the Qadi does in a law court. He'll look at the books of sharia, but he'll also look at you know, what the local custom is. And if that custom is not violating something that's known in Revelation, yeah. in which case it has to shut up and die, if it's not violating that, then yeah. that becomes Islam for those yeah. people. yeah yeah. and so the challenge uh for us in the west is to see whether we are going to use the orf of indonesia in holland or kurdistan in sweden and that's how we have to be as muslims Mm. or whether the traditional inculturation that the Ummah has always been pretty good at is going to be possible for us in modern europe Mm. so what should a mosque in sweden look like for instance Mm. Well, should it look like a Turkish mosque or a Moroccan mosque or a Kurdish mosque? Most of them do that. And that can be quite divisive because it cements ethnic divisions in the community, which are weakening. But what about what would a Swedish mosque look like? And how would a Swedish imam dress? Mm. And what kind of poetry, Islamic poetry, would you want to write using the particular genius and strengths of the Swedish language? And that's something that is starting now. I must but say, it, has it, is starting. it has to be uh,
1: convert-led, presumably. It can't
2: be... Well, not necessarily. If you look at some of the sort of rather Dutch-looking mosques in Holland now, in Rotterdam, for instance, a very interesting right. big mosque in Rotterdam, mm-hmm. which draws a lot on Dutch uh, styles of architecture, that's not primarily convert-led, that's led by... Uh, so I think that the, the differentiation that one saw between the converts and the cradle Muslims, if you like, in the eighties and nineties, is starting to die away. Right. Um, I think it may be that uh, the age of the convert is coming to an end, really, and that we're going to see this new generation uh, really powering ahead, which will be, I think, a, a good thing. Um, and it is often like in our mosque in Cambridge, which tries to be British as well as sort of Islamic in various ways. Um, yeah using local British patterns of brickwork and Gothic vaulting and so forth. Uh, uh, That's been very strongly supported by the local community, which is Bangladeshi, Turkish, and so forth. Once it's explained to them that this is a way of being courteous to your neighbors, you don't really want a mosque that they experience as an insult. (laughs) Uh, It has to be courteous as long as it's not violating something in the scripture. What's Mm -hmm. wrong with courtesy?
1: And, and courtesy and all that it is, is an Islamic virtue. It's something yeah, that himself talked about endlessly. It, this is not some kind of English gentleman virtue. This is an Islamic virtue as well.
2: Yeah, it's neighborliness. Um, yeah. So um, somebody once came to the Holy Prophet sallam, offering him some stew. And his reply was, Have you offered some to your Jewish neighbor? So this idea of neighborliness, which is very big in Islam, yeah. uh, doesn't just mean Muslim neighbors, but also non-Muslim neighbors. And this is something that you can see again and again in, in the Seerah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the public statements of Islam's presence have to be, if we're sensible, respectful rather than uh, irritants.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, I was recently uh, looking at the speech of the mayor of... Pecs, I think it is, in southern Hungary, who is some Orban's party, anti-immigrant, building fences, and so forth. Yeah. And there's a historic mosque in Pecs, which was built by the Ottomans. Yeah. And the interviewer was saying, well, you've got the Muslim community here. Why don't you allow the mosque to open up again? And he said, no, no, because they have different traditions. They dress differently, and they eat food that's very different from ours. And he named all of the things that have nothing to do with Islam as a religion, but to do with the orf of recently arrived people, as he understands it. So very often, Islamophobia fixes on superficial things that are religiously dispensable anyway. So Mm -hmm. I'm, in the longer term, quite optimistic, because you see with the new generation, certainly the third generation, they're really very French and Swedish. I was talking to a guy in um, Cologne recently. There's a huge new mosque there. Mm -hmm. And as you go into the mosque, the sign says Turkish Mosque, Turkish Mosque, on every door, a big sign, Turkish Mosque. (laughs) Uh, The Turks are maybe 50% of the Muslims of Cologne, but they wanted to make this statement. (sighs) And there's a bookshop, but it has books in Turkish, all books in German, all translated from Turkish, you know, the kind of scene. and this young guy, even though he's a second generation, his parents are Turkish, says, I'm German. I'm not Turkish. Yeah. So I don't really feel that that's my place. Mm. And there's going to be more and more people like that. And as the mosques make the transition, which is pretty easy to do in many ways because you don't have to change the abada or any of the essential functions from being a place of refuge for first-generation, understandably kind of defensive communities to something that's more open and dawah-oriented. Then you'll see not just the younger generation feeling more at home in the mosque, but also more and more non-Muslims coming to the mosque, recognizing Islam for what it is and inshallah joining us. So in the longer term, I'm pretty optimistic. I, i'm very pleased
1: to hear this uh, optimistic uh, prognosis for the future um I, i'm just very finally are, are you working on anything yourself in terms of uh books or articles or lectures that we might look forward to
2: well i'm i have various sort of projects up my sleeve one of them that i'd really like to do although it might be quite a short book is a book on life the principle of life wow. and all that it means because all of the the basic scientific presumptions about how the world came to be and why it is the way it is are arguable and mysterious Mm. the Big Bang mystery where did the physical constants come from mystery Uh, where did life come from what is life mystery where does consciousness come from what is consciousness mystery Mm -hmm. religion answers those things pretty well secularity is really struggling it's Mm -hmm. kind of agnostic so life is one of the big mysteries and it seems to me that the Qur'an is very much a celebration of life Mm -hmm. it says not just look at the sky and the mountains but at the living things Mm -hmm. and all of those beautiful hadiths about kindness to animals Mm -hmm. uh, which is not there in the New Testament really there's not much about animals there unless you count the episode of the Gadarene swine which is perhaps not a kind of Ideal proof text for animal rights activists, I don't know, but <laughs> oh, um, the, one of the different things about Islam is this valorizing of the, the natural world. Mm. Uh, and it's a very beautiful, joyful thing because, of course, nature is indicative of transcendence. Uh, and gender, of course, comes into that because life comes into being by and large through the interaction of alternate principles. I mean, to just the normativity.
1: By uh, recent discovery, uh, not just DNA, but as you actually see now um, within the human cell, or all cells mm-hmm. actually, is biological yep. machines. Now that's the term that biologists use, not me calling yep. them biological machines. And these are extraordinarily complex pieces mm-hmm. of machinery oh, that yeah. we can see them with our naked eye, but they're there within living organisms yep. and do an incredibly complex tasks to do with the duplication of the cell and creation of DNA and so on. I'm looking at this and thinking, good grief, you know, I mean, if that's not design, what is? Uh, I, I, and uh, it, it kind of cries out for a transcendent explanation. And I'm, I've, I've got yeah. an atheist friend of mine who uh, has uh, some scientific background. I said, Look, how does on your materialist Darwinian Uh, explanation. How do you account for this? He said, oh, uh, I'm I'm sure it's been explained. And he's never actually been able to present me anything that has explained this extraordinary complex machinery, which we can observe, that does incredibly complex computer-like tasks that's supposedly a product of random materialist evolution. I I mean, it's amazing, I think. Yeah,
2: I think it's it's a YouTube clip, even, the inner life of the cell or something that comes from Harvard, Which is mind blowing, particularly when you consider that there's several billions of them in every one of us. So, yeah, it's a good example of the fact that atheism is more a leap of faith and more speculative and I think more ego driven than monotheism. Mm. Um, You know, but unfortunately, we live in an age of, of the wrong kind of fundamentalism and we're up against a kind of really unreflective anger because people in their egotistic cells really don't want to self identify as religious because that's not cool they think they'll be socially blanked and cancelled and that it, it's a kind of fear of that but yeah the, the cell is is a miracle every organ of the body is is an extraordinary miracle yeah uh, and it makes sense that there is an ordering principle because yeah. uh, you don't need to be a philosopher to realize that principles of subtle order uh, are not intrinsic in the nature of chaos and nothingness. Hmm. Um, The famous
1: British uh, philosopher, (coughs) Professor Flew, 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 who spent decades, a very eminent academic at uh, Oxford as well, uh, arguing against um, theism, against God, as an atheist, and towards the end of his life, he maintained complete consistency. He argues Hmm. in his book, his consistency, where is the evidence taking me, and he argued that the evidence now took him to belief in god because science was uncovering the most extraordinary phenomena oh, yeah. in the universe i mean he referenced dna uh and and not the fine-tuning of the universe mm-hmm. so he became a believer in god in the last few years of his life having spent an entire lifetime arguing for the truth of atheism purely he said on the basis of science now whether or not that's I think perhaps the fitra, fitra kicking in ultimately, but he, he felt there was good reason to believe in God now, especially now.
2: Uh, this is why the Quran, when it speaks of unbelief and error, speaks of it in terms of ahwah, in other words, whims or passions. Mm-hmm. It's the ego and the lack of self-knowledge that puts people in a position where they end up believing in complete absurdities, that the subtlety of Shakespeare, for instance, is possible in a completely random universe whose existence is itself a kind of bizarre impossibility Um, but yeah we live in an age where I think it's it's theists like you and me who are the skeptics because we're just skeptical of the idea that all of this order and beauty and symmetry and all of those 50 or so physical constants just pop up out of the primal void we're kind of a bit cynical about that Um, They're they're those who have taken the leap of of blind faith and I think ultimately that's why monotheism in one shape or another will prevail and people again when the ego is set aside and they have a contemplative dimension will recognize the the beauty of Islam and its forms once the kind of matamoros cry has subsided uh, and some of the veiling bad habits of the Muslims are set aside. Um, Islam is uh, Mm is uh, is really trumps everything else in my experience wow, well that's a, a beautiful
1: um, fine finale there um, and uh, just thank you so much sir for uh, your precious time and I, I know the viewers of whom there will be many I'm sure will learn hugely from uh, what you've said and um, I, I do recommend uh, your latest book traveling home essays on Islam in Europe. It's a challenging read, but um, based, I think, on a series of lectures and talks on different occasions that you've given. Um, but um, there's a lot of, uh, many gems in there, I think, to to ponder uh, for people, for, for those, for people who think, I think that's a, cr- a chronic expression, for those who reflect and think, there's material there. So um, thank you so much for your time, sir. And um, I wish you well. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you. Bless you.
0: Okay.